Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We are walking through what it means to be a member, a healthy member of Fairhaven uh, Baptist Church. And we have, I've referred you to this book before. I encourage you once again, this book is a helpful book for you to get. What is a healthy church member by Thabiti Anyabule. I don't expect you to know how to pronounce his name. uh, But if you go in and tell them I'm looking for the church health book by Thabiti There's not a lot of them out there, and so you'll be able to find out which one, but I encourage you to get this book because everything we're talking about in these weeks as we're discussing are things that you'll find him cover in this book on what is a healthy church member. So I promote that to you today, and there's going to be another book that I promote to you uh, later on that I'm going to encourage you to invest in if you have the opportunity. But this morning, we are picking up with the same text we looked at last week, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And what we looked at last week is that we as healthy church members should be gospel-saturated. That means that the good news of Jesus should infiltrate every area of our lives, that it it is that precious to us, it is that important to us. And this morning, we're going to continue along in that same text, but what we're going to be looking at is not only that we should be gospel-saturated, that the good news of Jesus, the kingdom of God coming to earth and, and his rule and reign over us as individuals, over his church, and then ultimately over all of creation. And while that is true, what we're focusing on today is what's caught up in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, which is the idea that in order to be a healthy church member, you have to truly be saved. Now you say, of course that's the case, but let's not take for granted that in every church there are people who really believe they're saved who really aren't. It's... it's, It's something that we have to wrestle with and struggle with as long as we are in this world, apart from when Jesus has finally come the second time, we have to live with the idea and the notion that many believe they are saved when in fact they aren't. And the reason they believe they're saved is because at some point in their life, they put their faith in something other than Jesus. Now, I know you say, well, Christians would never do that. But I cannot tell you how many times I've had someone come into my office, not here, or not just here, but in every church I've been a part of, someone will initially stir up a conversation where they believe they're saved or had believed they had been saved their whole lives only to come to the conclusion that they truly weren't. I heard it this past week in my seminary class. We had one of the North American Mission Board members who was a church planting, about to be one of the church planting strategists. He's planting a church in Toronto and had planted other churches off of his church. And he said there was a period of time that he was serving at a church in Collierville. And he was serving on staff at the church as a missions pastor. And he realized he was not saved. He was serving in a church on staff, getting paid, preaching sermons, teaching classes about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. And he said one day he realized that he had never done it himself. Called up his pastor, said, I need to meet with you. I'm not saved. And if that can happen to him, who had preached countless messages on the gospel, can I say that it is something that we can fall into? And as a pastor, I don't want to ever say that I didn't present the gospel to you 
and encourage you to examine your heart to see whether you are really saved or whether you're putting your faith in something else. Now, what else would we put our faith in? I've heard people come into my office in some of the churches I've pastored and tell me that their salvation experience is basically I walked an aisle 10 years ago. They had an an invitation. They said, people come. So I got out of my seat and I came forward and, and that's their salvation experience. But nowhere in there was the idea that I realized I was a terrible sinner who needed to be forgiven of my sin or that Jesus was in fact the Lord and King of all creation and I needed to call upon his name to be saved. They just simply equated walking down the aisle with salvation. Or how about this? There are people who believe that they are Christians or thought they were Christians because they prayed a prayer one time that they were led in by someone saying, if you'll pray this, you'll be saved. But here's the problem. You can say prayers all you want, but that doesn't equate salvation. I remember I counseled with this young couple. They wanted me to do their marriage for them. And I remember the young lady who had grown up in the church, but not here, this isn't here, grown up in the church, was about 30 years old. And she sat in my office, and when I asked both of them, are you Christians? They said, yes. And I said, tell me what that was like. When did that happen? What what happened around it? And basically, she came to admit over the course of several um, conversations that she was putting all of her trust in the fact that one day, 10 years ago, she had walked an aisle and prayed a prayer, and she thought that did it. But she said, I never trusted in Jesus. See, it's so easy to make religious activity what we're putting our faith in and not God. Now, I'm going to try to do this. I'm not sure it's going to happen well, but I'm going to try. Because what I want to address this morning is, are we truly saved? I want to recommend this book to you. This book is a hugely helpful book. Just so you know, J.D. Greer, who is now the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he wrote this book several years ago. I know the title is provocative. He did it on purpose. The title is Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And what he's addressing in this book is something that is so helpful for me as a pastor that I've recommended this book numerous times. Because what he addresses in the book is how to tell the difference between genuine conversion, genuine salvation in Jesus, and religious activity. Hugely helpful book. You need to buy this book and you need to read it. It is an easy read. He does not not speak complicated language. And so I want you to get this book at some point and I want you to read through it. I wish I had a copy to give you, but someone stole mine. And so somewhere out there, someone stole my book, and they're, they're, but here's the thing, they've stopped asking Jesus in their heart. I hope they're saved. But that book is not on my bookshelf anymore. I gave it away, and I can't remember who took it, but they never gave it back. But I encourage you to read this book because it is so helpful in sharing what it means to genuinely be saved. Now, this morning, I want to deal with a couple of things in particular. First of all, let's start with the notion that salvation is not about religion. Because sometimes we get them confused together. But this is not about religion. Do you know the difference between true gospel and religion? Do you know the difference between the two? Religion is man-centered. Religion is what do I do to be saved? What do I do? What job do I have to accomplish? What, What step do I have to take? What action must I take? 
That's, that's religion. That's man-centered. How do I accomplish this thing? Do you know what true gospel is? It's God-centered. That's how you tell the difference. When someone says I'm religious, you better have them define that. Because a lot of times what we call religion is simply man-centered theology. Me doing what I can to save myself. And here's the thing. That is what the whole walk the aisle, pray the prayer is about most times. Now listen, I'm not, dis- I'm not discounting the fact that sometimes people do walk an aisle and get saved. Sometimes people do pray the prayer and get saved. But it's not about those actions. There's something deeper than that. Because those actions in and of themselves are nothing more than religious responses. And what we need is to truly be saved. What does it mean to truly be converted? And God wants us to know whether we're saved or not. John chapter 21, in his gospel, John ends by saying, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. Not hope, not guess, not rel- God wants us to know whether we are truly saved or not. And if so, we better take it serious because we're talking about eternal things. We're not talking about temporary things. We're talking about eternal things. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, I want to point out a few things to you this morning from this text. I want you to notice that we studied this last week, but Jesus begins his ministry by saying to the people, he says he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We focused on that last week. Now we're going to focus on the next phrase, repent and believe in the gospel, because Jesus is saying this is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to be converted, is that you repent and believe in the gospel. So let's break this down and make it as easy as we can. Let's talk about repentance first. What does repentance really mean? We talked a little bit about it last week, but let's talk a little little bit more. Repentance means to change one's mind, leading to a change of action. That repentance is primarily not the outward act, but it's a change of one's mind or heart that leads to action. You understand what I'm getting at? So repentance means a change of mind that leads to obedience. But it's not just simply the act of the change itself. Well, why is that necessary? Why is repentance necessary? Acts chapter 8 tells us. Acts chapter 8, we hear these frightening words in Acts chapter 8, verse 22. Peter is teaching. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. In that sermon, what is Peter identifying as the key problem? Right, not necessarily just the outward activity. What he's saying is you need to repent of this wickedness that is where? In your heart. So repentance is about an internal change, an internal difference that results in something external. I believe this is what David was crying out for in Psalm 51. Remember in Psalm 51, he tells us that he needed to be forgiven. So why is repentance necessary? One, because wickedness is in our hearts. It is who we are. It is an internal problem. And in Psalm 51, David even says as much when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, who's he talking to? God. Now, just so you know, David had messed up a bunch of other people's lives too. Right? There's a guy named Uriah who'd probably like to say, "Uh, yeah, you messed me over pretty good. 
But when David views his sin, how does he primarily view it? He views it as a, a heart rebellion against God alone. That's why repentance is needed is because every person in this room has rebelled against God. Even if you try to do good religious activity, it doesn't change the fact that our hearts are wicked and need to be forgiven by God. That's why repentance is necessary. When Jesus shows up and says, repent, what he's saying is you're sinners who have rebelled against the king and you need to confess that and you need to turn to Christ. Not only that, but in God's word, he commands all to repent. This is not something just for your neighbor or the really wicked person you know. God calls on all to repent. We see this in places like Acts 17.30 when Paul is preaching in Athens. He says God commands everyone everywhere to repent. So it's not just a me problem, it's an us problem. We all have this issue of wickedness that resides in our hearts and when Jesus shows up on the scene he says in order to be truly saved in order to be truly one of his people in order to be in union with him you must repent recognize your wicked heart and seek the only one who can forgive you the king of kings and so repentance is something that is quite serious next let's think about belief what is belief well, believing means acknowledging God told the truth about Jesus. What it means to believe the gospel means to believe that what God said about Jesus is absolutely true. And what did God say about Jesus? He is the Lord, and he has finished forever the work of our salvation. It's to acknowledge the fact that God has spoken to us about Christ and he is absolutely truthful in what he says, that Jesus is in fact the Lord and he has accomplished our salvation through his work. And if you want a key biblical picture of this, Abraham is a wonderful picture of it. You know why? Well, because in texts like Genesis 15, we see that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Did you catch that? Not Abraham did this and it was credited to him as righteous. Not Abraham did this action, although he did in response. But what caused Abraham to be credited as righteous before God? His belief in what God had told him. Because God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. So God wasn't calling him to do some act. God was calling him to believe what he was saying was the truth. When Jesus shows up in, in Mark chapter 1 and says, repent and believe, he's saying not only do you need to turn from your wicked heart, not only do you need a new heart that will love God, but you need to believe in the gospel that what God had said about Christ was true. So listen, you can walk an aisle, you can pray a prayer and not do these things. You can do activity and not repent and believe. And I think that's why so many people sit in church and believe that they're truly saved is because they thought it was about the activity, the action, and they forget about the internal heart issue that must be dealt with. So there are a couple of errors. Oh, by the way, I had Romans 4 on there as well because Paul says in Romans chapter 4 the same thing about Abraham. It was his belief in God that was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now, there's two errors that we need to be careful of. Number one, with regards to repentance, we need to understand that repentance is not simply about outward action. Repentance is not simply about outward action. Because if it were so, then we would boast in ourselves, boast in our own goodness, but it would also rob us when we don't do the things we should, when we don't live according to what we should. And so what we need to see is that it's more than just outward action. Repentance is not simply about that. But instead, it is about the heart issue that must be dealt with. Now, what I want to show you is that one of the things that makes this so concerning is that religious activity is actually one of the, this is what J.D. Greer says in his book, religious activity is one of the common substitutes for genuine spirit-generated repentance. That a lot of people are resting in what they've done as opposed to the spirit-generated repentance that God brings through the preaching of his word and the application of it through the spirit. And what we realize, what we fail to realize many times is that we've placed most of our faith in what we've done and not in what Jesus has done. So here's what I want you to get most of all. Repent and believe are both heart postures. Repent and believe are both heart postures with repentance flowing out of belief. They're not disconnected from one another. They're not step one and then step two. But as a result of belief, as a result of believing that God was right and true with what he said about Jesus, repentance flows out of that belief. You get what I'm saying? Belief that Jesus is the Lord and his sacrifice is the work that I needed to have done to secure my salvation. Believing in that leads to the outward flow of repentance. But they are primarily heart postures. Which is why you can do all the religious activity you want. It doesn't equate salvation. And so when Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel, he's not simply saying do step one and do step two. He's saying believe and out of that belief repent. Which is helpful for me to hear because most of the people I deal with are dealing mostly with just the outward activity. Just dealing with that and trying to get that squared away. But that's not what real repentance is. It's not simply the outward action. It is the outflow of belief in the heart. Not only that, but with regards to belief, we see that it's not simply about intellectual attainment. To believe is not simply just so you can understand some facts about who God is. It's not simply can you quote what verse that was from. But true saving belief is about submission to Jesus. It's about submission to Christ, not simply about learning as much information as we can. And as J.D. Greer says in his book, belief is trust in Jesus. And I want to guard you from any idea that that belief is simply, can I get enough factual information in my brain? It's about the submission. And we see this in places like John chapter 3, verse 36. 
Because in John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus tells us definitively that there is only one of two sides you can be on. He says in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a weighty verse, right? Because this tells us who the wrath of God is on and who it's not. I'm pretty sure everyone in the room does not want God's wrath on them. I'm assuming. Do you know the difference between having God's wrath on us and not? Whoever believes in the Son, has eternal life. What does that imply? That the opposite is true. Whoever does not believe in the Son is under the wrath of God and does not have eternal life. So we should probably determine whether we really believe Jesus is the King or not and whether we believe that we've rebelled against Him. We should be truly convinced and convicted of that. And no walking down an aisle can do that for you. No prayer you can pray can do that for you. Only God can change a heart to understand, man, he was right. Jesus is the king, and man, I've rebelled against him. You see what I'm getting at? And I hate the fact that so many people sit in church their whole lives and don't understand. They need to submit to Christ with their heart and not with their activity first. That they would know him. Submit to him, fully convinced of the fact that the truth is he is the king. He is the savior. And he deserves worship. Listen, this scares me because I know that God's word already speaks about this. And here's what I want to encourage us to avoid. We must avoid making salvation simply a transaction. We have to avoid the idea that salvation is a formula. If you do A and then do B, then you will have C. A relationship with Christ is not about a transaction. A relationship with Christ is just that. It is a submitting relationship to him as the rightful king. And what the Bible tells us is that there are people who will be convinced their whole life that salvation is simply a, a transaction. If I do this, God must do this. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, in three of the scariest verses you'll read in the Bible, verses 21 through 23, Jesus tells us, at the day we stand before him, there will be some who say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that for your name? Lord, didn't we do all this religious activity? Didn't we display our allegiance to you by outward works? He says, in that day there will be not some there will be many who say, didn't we do such and such in your name? And what does Jesus say he will say to them in that day? Depart from me. I never knew you. There's not many more scary verses in the Bible than that than to know that you could live your entire life in church thinking you understand and you get it. And then one day stand before Jesus and he says, I never knew you. You did a lot of great stuff, but it wasn't about my glory and it wasn't about submitting to me. It was about doing your thing. Church, hear me. I don't want any of you. I don't want any of you to stand before Jesus. And have him say that to you. 
I don't want to have him say it to me. I want to know that I've submitted my life to him as the king. And I want to be sure when I stand before him on that day, he's not going to cast me aside. But he's going to say, welcome. So many people are going to get to that time and they're going to be turned away because they base their salvation on religious activity and not on the submission to Christ and belief that he is the king. This morning, I want you to know very well that he's your king and you trust and believe that he is the only one who can rescue your heart. And see, the problem is the whole pray the prayer and walk the aisle thing is actually something that can be very deceiving. And in fact, I think it's something that health wealth preachers prey upon. They believe that they can get people to respond that that's a victory and a win. They promote this idea that it's about your religious activity and salvation is nothing more than a transaction with God. If you do A, he must do B. I'm here to tell you that God will not be manipulated and his arm will not be twisted to get him to act in a way we want him to. He's not asking us to do A and B so we can get C. He's telling us Jesus already did all of it. Now repent and trust in him. Believe that he's the one who did it, not you or me. That's what it means to really be saved is that we're resting in what Christ has done. That when he walked on this earth, he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't. And when he died on the cross, he died the death that we couldn't. And when he rose from the grave, he conquered death that we couldn't. And he lives now life that can never be stripped away from him. And those who are in union with him have those same blessings. And we have to understand that it's in union with Christ we receive that, not by the tote board in heaven putting our stickers from what we did. What's truly needed is heart change that only God can bring. True salvation is a heart change only God can bring through the work of his spirit. And I believe he has declared it definitively in his word. And this is Psalm 51 again. Remember what David cries out to God after he realizes he needs to, right? He believes that God is the king and he's the only one who can forgive. And he, he realizes that he needs to repent, that he, he, he's sinned against God and he needs to be forgiven. You know what David cries out for from God? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. See, that's what, that's what real salvation looks like. Real salvation is understanding I am guilty and God has forgiven me through Jesus. And David cries out to God, I'm a sinner and I need you to create in me a clean heart, a new one that loves you. Oh, that's what real salvation looks like. And if that's the case, if that's true salvation, I still want you to come down the aisle. I want you to tell me about it. I want you to tell me how you're trusting in Christ. I want you to pray a prayer. I want you to pray, God, that, that he would forgive you, that you would confess. But don't make it about the external activity. Make it about the heart submission to him that results in obedience to him outwardly. What's needed is the heart change that only he can bring. Oh, that we would know this, every single one of us. What Jesus is calling us to is a relationship with him. J.D. Greer says, it is the relationship to Christ that saves, not the prayer that signified the beginning of that relationship. 
when you started to rest is not as important as the fact that you're doing it now. He goes on to say there's only one posture ever appropriate to Christ, and that is surrendered to his lordship and believing that he did what he said he did. That's what it means to really believe. And oh, how I want every single one of us to know what we're trusting in and who we're trusting in. So this morning, what I want you to walk away with is the understanding that Jesus is, in fact, the king, and he deserves our worship. And so this morning, I'm simply going to ask you the question that I believe Jesus would ask us, and that is, are you truly saved? Knowing what the Bible says about repentance and belief, are those heart submissions that you have made? Have you believed that Christ is exactly who the Father said he was? That he is the Lord and King of all creation. He is the righteous and holy King who lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And that he came and died so that sinners like us could be forgiven and redeemed from the depths of our rebellion against him. Do you truly believe that he is the righteous King? And have you repented out of that belief? Have you repented? Realize you need to be forgiven of your sin and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. My prayer is that every single one of you has. And if you haven't, that you will not leave here this morning until you talk to me. That you'll have the courage to step out of your seat and, and tell me, Jason, I need to know what it means to be a Christian. I need to repent. I need to believe in him. God's word calls us to this. God commands that we do these things. Jesus didn't suggest it. He commands it. And as your pastor, I want every one of you to know you are saved, truly saved by the blood of the Lamb. This morning, maybe you have questions about what that means to be saved. I'm going to encourage you to step out of your seat, come forward, tell me, Jason, I need to know more. Would you talk with me? Maybe you have questions about uh, baptism or joining the church or things surrounding what it means to be saved. I want you to step out of your seat, come and tell me. I'm happy to stick around with you after church and share with you exactly what these things mean. Or maybe you just need to go to God this morning and you need to have your heart laid open bare before him to say, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your, ex, your, your activity? Are you trusting in your religion? Or are you trusting in Jesus and his saving work? Let's not walk out of here until we have settled that for sure. God wants us to be saved. He wants us to repent. He wants us to believe. And he works all this by his spirit's power as the word is applied to you. This morning, let's respond to him. We're also going to celebrate Lord's Supper this morning. Guess what that's a celebration of? The fact that Christ has definitively done the work to secure our salvation. Before we go in to do that, this is not a religious activity. This is an act of worship. And before we do that, we need to make sure we're saved before we celebrate.
This morning, let's examine our hearts and see, do we truly believe in Christ or are we resting in our own work? There's only one that accounts, and it's Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you, and I thank you for the time we have this morning to be able to, God, speak of your goodness and preach your word, and Lord, to know that you have acted definitively for us. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room. God, I pray that you will help us to see clearly whether we are trusting in you or whether we're trusting in our own religious activity. Father, none of us want to stand before you and hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so, Father, I pray you will give us absolute clarity in our own hearts to know whether we're trusting in you or trusting in our own efforts. And Father, if any of us are trusting in our own efforts, I pray we'll have the courage to call out to you. Even if we thought we've been saved for 50 years, God, I pray that if we know we're not, that we would call out to you and make it known that we, we are trusting in you now. Father, I pray that you would convince us of your son's ultimate sacrifice for us. That that's all we need to be forgiven. So, Father, I pray you'll do that in this place. Father, as we get ready to respond and before we go into Lord's Supper, I pray, God, that you would help this not to be a ritual. Help this not just to be a religious activity, but, God, may we celebrate Lord's Supper this morning out of worship to you because you have secured our salvation. Oh, Lord, may we trust in you above all things. Show us our hearts, God. Help us to examine them and to know where we stand with you. God, draw people to yourself and show them your love and goodness. Father, as we respond to you, we pray that you will receive glory and honor. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.